It's crazy to think that Christmas is only three days away. Three days away, it feels to me like, like Advent just begun. And we're in this, this place where, where kids can feel that it's just around the corner. That they're anticipating. They're, it, it's palatable. It is, it is right around the corner. And adults, we're in that place where we're staying up late at night. Finishing cards, presents, cookies, travel plans, all things we need to do, all things that take time. And whether or not we finish them, Christmas is still coming. Three days, three days. Hope you're all ready. You all ready? Raise your hand if you're completely done and ready. I am impressed. And if you're raising your hand, I'm going to ask you to come and help at my house. Uh, during this season of Advent, we've been journeying through the songs of the season here at church and kind of looking through some of our favorite Christmas carols, some of our favorite Christmas uh, Advent songs, and, and also at some of the songs and the poetry and the prophecies that we read about in, in Scripture that are connected to the Incarnation, that are connected to Jesus' birth, to God becoming human and moving in to our experience and to the neighborhood. So during the first week, during the first week of Advent, when we're focusing on, on hope, we looked at it's Simeon's song, and, and Simeon, remember, was a prophet who waited with hope for his entire life to meet the Messiah. And then as Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to be dedicated at the temple, he says, oh, finally I can rest. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. So we talked about that the first week. The, the second week of Advent, we talked about God's peace through the, the song of John the Baptist's dad through Zachariah's song. And last week we looked at the overwhelming joy that Mary experiences as she sung out a few months before Jesus is born. Uh, this morning we're, we're continuing with our, our Advent theme, looking at God's love, and we're going to explore it through the words that, that Jesus hears when he's baptized. So we'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. You're welcome to follow along on the screen or in the pew Bibles, or if you brought your own Bibles, allowed to do that as well. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this season and for what it invites us to do. Lord, in these next few moments, as we, we take a pause from the, the busyness of the season and we open your word, we ask that you'd give us ears to hear what you have for us. And Lord, I ask that you would take my words and use them for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So usually when we talk about Advent, when we talk about Christmas, we, we don't typically turn to the gospel of Mark. And why? why? Why do you think that we don't typically turn to the gospel of Mark? It's not there. Mark is there. Gospel of Mark is there. But the story of Jesus' birth, we don't read directly about it in Mark's gospel. And each of the gospels, they take a different approach to the Christmas story. Matthew invites us to look at the history of of Jesus' birth by diving into Jesus' genealogy. John invites us to see the big picture. He goes beyond Jesus' birth, kind of birth, kind of looking at the, the macro, the big picture of, of how the Messiah fits into the beginning of time, to the big picture of, of the story of God and the story of God's people. Luke invites us really to worship with the story as he tells it. It's why, more often than not, we use Luke when we tell the story of Christmas. We spend time there and it's because he, he includes a lot of details and he tells the story in a way that in, invites us to use our imaginations to step into the birth narrative. But Mark is different. 
He's kind of straight and to the point. He starts with John the Baptist quoting Isaiah and saying, the time's come, prepare the way. That's how it starts, short and sweet. It's the same sort of immediacy that Mark starts with that, that kids are experiencing right now and saying, hey, time's short. Christmas, three days. Let's get going. Mark describes John the Baptist as this, this guy who hung out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and eating crazy things like wild honey, although that's not too crazy, sounds good, and locusts, that part is crazy. He, he calls for people to repent, to confess their sins, be baptized, and then he warned that Jesus was on the way. And then just, just a few verses into his gospel, we read this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Again, straight and to the point. Mark doesn't paint a picture of a triumphal entry. He's very matter of fact about the, the whole thing. He brings a man with a common name, Jesus, from a common town, Nazareth in Galilee, to participate with others in a common experience, baptism. When we suggest that Mark doesn't tell the Christmas story at all, I, I think we, we kind of miss something. He, he just tells it differently. He just tells it differently, straight to the point, one sentence. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came to live amongst regular people. One sentence. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. One sentence of the incarnation. And there he is. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now one of the most well-known Christmas carols was, was written by a, a French winemaker who rarely went to church and his friend who is Jewish. Some of you might know the story of, of O Holy Night. Uh, the winemaker was also a fairly well-known local poet. So, so the priest, who, who maybe visited the winery every, every so often, got to know the winemaker and, and, and said, Hey, you're also a, a poet. Would you mind writing something for me for Christmas Eve Mass? Would you mind writing something that I can share on, on Christmas Eve Mass? So, so they come up with something on Christmas, for Christmas Mass. He, he flips the winemaker flips to Luke's gospel and he places himself in the nativity story, imagining what he would have seen, what he would have heard, what he would have smelled. Then he gave the lyrics to his Jewish friend who was the son of a, a well-known composer and the Jewish friend wrote the music for the piece. For years, the church in France loved it, absolutely loved it. They sang it every Christmas until they figured out who had written it and that it it wasn't really people who were churchgoers that had, had written the song. So it was banned. Years later, a pastor out of Boston named John Sullivan Dwight translated the song into English. He's got a whole story of his own, but I'm not going to share too much of that. It was right around the Civil War, and, and Sullivan was, was against slavery. He was an abolitionist. So, so when he heard the line, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, it, it, it cut him deep. He said, oh, th this is significant. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. They stuck with him, and he, he shared the song with the north, with the northern part of the U.S. Then on Christmas Eve in 1906, 
a professor and chemist who had worked with Thomas Edison named Reginald Fessenden became the first person to broadcast his voice on the radio. He read the story of Jesus' birth using Luke, of course. And then he picked up his violin and he played O Holy Night. The first song to ever be played on the radio was A Christmas Carol written by a French winemaker and his Jewish friend and spread because of the passion of an abolitionist pastor and the creativity of an inventor. O Holy Night reminds us that God's love reaches into all of the different nooks and crannies all over the world that God's love reaches people that we, we can't even think of or don't even know, that, that God's love penetrates the whole world, all different kinds of places, all different kinds of people. And Advent and Christmas, they, they remind us of the depth and the breadth of that love, of that love. The Gospel of Mark starts with this, this image of parental love, of a mom or a dad looking to a child and saying, I claim you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I claim you. I love you. I am proud of you. Now, there's nothing quite like holding a child for the first time. I remember when when Ella was born, my oldest, looking down at her and, and just being filled with awe. How, huh? She came a couple weeks early, so we, we hadn't really finished doing the things that, that new parents do, you know, getting the nursery ready, picking out the outfit for the hospital, all those, all those sorts of things. Um, Haley wasn't even sure she was in labor uh, until her water broke. Then a couple hours later, there she was. Huh? Ah, what? And I said words to my wife that I will never, ever, ever live down. You were made for this. That's a good one. That, that's a good one. That was easy. Yeah, not my brightest moment. Over the first few weeks or so of Ella's life, I, I'd catch myself just kind of staring at her. Just like, what? 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 This was my daughter. And in, in those moments, I loved her more than anything else. And there was nothing she could do to make me stop loving her. The story that Mark launches into his gospel with a son having his relationship with his parent defined by that parent is a powerful, powerful image. And it really is a Christmas image, even if it is the adult Jesus that's baptized. It really is a a Christmas image. And and whether we're a parent ourselves or whether we're a child um, that that has a parent, it's something that we can relate to. Words shared between two people, they define a, a, a relationship. And they're especially powerful when they're spoken by a parent. The first words that Jesus hears are, are the words of belonging. You are my son. You are my son. One of the ministries that Haley and I were involved with when we were in, in Malawi, um, in Africa, and, and still have a, a passion for was, was called the Malangundi School for the Blind. 
Uh, there's a, a pretty significant vitamin D deficiency in, in Central Africa. So a lot of times moms will have, have, have um, problems in utero with their infants and, and, and babies will be born either with albinoism or blind. And so when a, a new child is born into a family, into a village that is albino or, or blind, they're kind of cast out. They're not really seen as, as having worth by their village, by their community. So the school, it goes and finds these kids and it brings them to the school and, and gives them a place to belong as they're cast aside by their communities. It's not just room and board. It's, it's, it's not just education. It's not just life skills. It gives them, these kids, a place to belong, a community where they matter. Every person has a desire to belong. No matter our age, no matter where or when we were born, we spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out where we fit in, trying to, to find our identity in relation to, to one another. Where, where, where do we belong? In? And here, God the parent defines it for, for Jesus the Son. You are my son. You are my son. Uh, I'm a, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, nerd, I should say. Any other Star Wars nerds out there? Um, any of you see the new one yet? So I can give the spoilers right now, right? No, no, I'm not going to. Don't worry. I saw it on Friday because I, I am, I am a huge, huge Star Wars nerd and I'm not going to give anything away. Don't, don't worry. But so much of the plot of this entire nine movie saga is about one person or another trying to find their place, not in the world, in the galaxy trying to find how they relate with the rest of the creatures, because they're not all people, the rest of the creatures that they are around. Where do they fit in? The story works because at some point we all wrestle with questions about who we are, what our identity is, and where we fit in. And here, right at the beginning of Mark, those questions are answered for Jesus. God sends a message to the incarnate Jesus and, and to anyone who reads about his baptism that says, this is my son, I claim him, here is where he fits, he belongs to me. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes, but when Jesus is claimed as son, it's, it's not quite the same as when I claim my, my children as, as my own simply because we're related, simply because we're connected biologically. There, there's more to it. The, the language that we see here in the Greek, it shows us that the creator God is also saying, this is the one I choose. This is the Messiah, the anointed king. This is the one. There's this very unique, completely unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. One that is defined by a parental relationship, but also one that professes that, that Jesus alone is the anointed king. And then Jesus hears, you are loved, the beloved. There are two ways to interpret these words of affirmation. Now, again, there's, there's no doubt that when Jesus hears these words, that, that Jesus shares a unique relationship with the Creator. It, it's, it's one of the reasons that anytime anyone tries to explain the Trinity, it, it's, it's difficult. How do we describe this, this relationship? Now, some read this phrase, and, and they see it as, Jesus is the beloved, the, 
the beloved, that Jesus is given this title, the one and only beloved. And others read it as more of kind of a general description. Along with the need to belong, every person, even Jesus, has a need to be loved. As he hears that he is loved, he is set free to be himself, to know that whether he chooses to run from his identity or to own his identity, that the Father's love for him won't change. In John 15, right after Jesus shares that he abides in his Father's love, he, he invites his followers to do the same, to abide in him. Eugene Peterson translates his phrases, uh, that phrase, abide in my love, as make your home in my love. Make your home in my love. So think of that image for a minute. The image of, of turning the place where you live into a home. It takes, takes work, right? The chores that nobody enjoys doing. Dishes. Laundry. Sweeping up the leaves that the kids spread all over the backyard. That never happens in my house. All of those things that we do to, to set up the Christmas decorations, to turn the place where we live into a home, where we make a home. It, it takes intentionality. It, it takes work. And here, we're, Jesus is telling his followers to abide, to, to work toward love. So what if... Every time you had to do one of those menial tasks at home, one of those, those chores, you just reminded yourself, oh, I'm supposed to make my home in God's love. That, that every time you do something around the house, you think, ah, here we go, I got to do this again, that, that you're just reminded, okay, I'm making my home and, and God calls me to make my home in God's love. Jesus continues his lesson in love in John 15 by explaining that, that there's also a self-sacrificing uh, nature of love. So it's a passage that many of us have heard before. Greater love has none, no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. God's love is constant, it's sacrificial, and it also serves as a model for how we should love and live with one another. Uh, Jesus tells his followers to love God and neighbor. And in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that the love that, that God has for us urges us. It compels us forward. It guides us. So again, when you're doing those menial tasks at home, uh, remind yourself, okay, God loves us. God loves me. When God the Father tells the Son, I love you, Jesus is being asked to make his home in the Father's constant and sacrificial love. And he spends the rest of his life living in that place. Then we read, with you I am well pleased. Now it seems that, that pretty early in most kids' lives, they, they reach this point where they're looking for approval from their parents. So uh, this last Thursday and Friday, our, our preschoolers had their their concert, sing-along, it wasn't a concert, their, their sing-along right here in the sanctuary, and we had kids all set up right here on the stairs singing, and their parents were all sitting where, where you were all sitting, and I got to tell you, I stood up here looking down at the parents just all completely proud of their kids, and not because they're the best singers in the world. I mean, some of them were, were great singers, but not because they're the best singers, and, and, and in turn, not only were the parents all looking proudly at their kids, the kids were all looking, where's mom? They wanted to be seen 
They, they wanted to be seen. They wanted to see, hey, my mom, my dad, my grandma, my grandpa, my aunt, my uncle, whomever is here, I want them to be proud of me. Now, outside of a few years in middle school and high school, it's not like that longing ever stops. Plenty of full-grown parents, full-grown adults, I should say, spend all kinds of time and energy still trying to make their parents proud. Some of us never shake mom and dad's voice in our heads. Right? And it's because we long to be praised by those who matter most to us. We long for the approval of those who matter most to us. It's why the words the teachers say, that coaches say, that aunts, uncles, and parents use with children are so important. So God the Father looks at the Son right away before Jesus' ministry ever really begins and says words that every son or daughter wants to hear. I am proud of you. I am proud of you. With a few words, the father celebrates the son's character, honors who Jesus is, and encourages him for the future. During Jesus' baptism, the creator God anoints him for ministry for his life's calling. And Jesus also hears, I claim you, you belong. I love you, and I'm proud of you. It's a completely unique relationship. Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And at the same time, As the Messiah, Jesus represents his people. When the Apostle Paul refers to the Christmas story in the passage we read earlier from Galatians, he he connects sending, God sending God's Son at just the right time. Kind of the big story that John, we read about in John's Gospel too, the big story that it was just the right time, the fullness of of time that God sent God's Son into this world. And then we get this kind of funny language. So that we might become adopted children and co-heirs with Christ. Now when N.T. Wright sets the words Jesus hears at his baptism next to these words in Galatians, he writes this. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up And the reality that when God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us, not as we see ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. The good news of the Father's song, the good news of the Christmas story is that we are, rem- we are reminded that we are loved by the God who says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you have a place, you belong, you are loved, you, you have this space, you have a purpose. You make God proud just by living into your God-given identity. Now these next three days as we march toward Christmas, my hope for us is that we would be reminded of the truth that we are loved by our Creator. Let's pray. Lord God, remind us that you love us. Wherever we sit this morning, remind us that we've been adopted into this this great big family, this, this great big story where grace abounds, where we have purpose, and where we're called to love others as you love us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.